Welcome back to another Friends of ASAR podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Anderson. In this podcast, we're discussing the recent article, Crime and Sexual Offense in Hati, from the recent special issue of Near Eastern Archaeology magazine, Crime and Punishment in the Bible and the Near East. I was able to interview the article's author, Dr. Elon Paled, by phone as he is currently in the Netherlands. Dr. Paled's research focuses on sexuality and gender in the ancient Near East, and includes social and cross-cultural perspectives on religion, cult, ritual practices, and jurisdiction. The next voice you'll hear is Dr. Paled giving a little background on the collection of Hittite laws referenced in his article, and if these laws treated all their citizens equally. Uh, well, the background. Well, you don't really know exactly when these laws were actually written, and we certainly do not know about the origin of them. The earliest copy that we have about this collection are... It's disputed. They are dated to anything between, let's say, 1650 to 1500 before common era. So we don't even know what is the, the cultural origin of these laws. Um, but the question of whether everybody were treated similarly or equally, um, probably not. First of all, the perpetrators were only men, and this is quite interesting. And, and it's not unique to the Hittites, by the way. I mean, you can see it in any other law collection from the ancient Near East. Only men could have been regarded as people who can perform a crime, basically. So it's a question of um, an active-passive model, in a sense. Uh, Men can perform crimes. Women can sometimes be uh, the ones who were an object, in a sense, that the crime was committed on them. Um, So this is the the first point about inequality between uh, genders, especially. And we have different kind of inequality between uh, between uh, free people. Today we might regard these people as, as citizens, and uh, slaves were obviously uh, treated quite differently. And at least in the Hittite laws, we have uh, another subgroup of persons who are called uh, a namra, which is the Sumerian term, for uh, people who were probably war captives. So the Hittites would conquer a, a foreign land, and they would have some people who were taken captive. They brought back to Hatti, and they had they became a group of their own, and they were again they were not treated similarly as Hittite civilians in a sense. But there were still laws like they could commit crimes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and you can see that in some of the laws, the the, the non-Hittite civilians would have been treated differently. They would have to pay a fine, for example, it would have been higher. Were people like was the punishment of a crime? different for people in different categories. So was a male citizen treated less harsh as like a male slave, or I think in the article you call them deportees? Yes, deportees is a kind of a modern term that uh, it is as good as it gets, basically. We don't have a very good definition for these people. They were deported by the Hittites from their countries of origin. They were taken as captives into Hatti. So we usually use the term deportees for these people. Um, another aspect of these people in the law is that if somebody committed a crime against a deportee or a slave, um, he would have been well. He would have had to pay the fine, of course, but the fine the fine would have been uh, smaller in comparison to the similar crime had it been committed against a hated person. Mm. So it's another uh, it's another way of uh, looking at this distinction between the categories, the, the social categories. Right. So how did you come to study? sexual offense in ancient times? <laughs> Good question. I don't really know. Uh, it's, uh, well, see, the thing is, I was interested in history ever was I was a little child, basically. 
but I never imagined that I would study the Hittites. It just happened eventually, in a way. And when I began my MA studies in Tel Aviv University, I was quite clueless about the topic for an MA thesis. And my professor, it must have just suggested to me to write about sexuality among the Hittites. So I wrote a thesis, and what I tried to do in that thesis was to um, take all the texts that mentioned sexuality or gender matters uh, from the Hittite corpus and try to make some sense into it. So I used categories, and the first category would have been the, the legal one. So I just had a chapter about sexuality in the Hittite laws. And from this point, just things, things just continued, and eventually there was a thesis. And a few years later, I was offered to make this contribution to uh, New Eastern Archaeology and write about uh, something about uh, legal matters in the Hittite country. So I thought to myself, okay, there's something that I never did before, which is write about sex crimes and more specifically about uh, incest and kin relations uh, among the Hittites. So it was a combination of something that I did before but never really took as a main project and an offer to do something new. And this is the result, eventually, this article. It's a really interesting article, so personally, I'm really glad you did it, because I enjoyed reading it. So I guess let's get to the article. When you talk about incest and kin relations, it says that if a man knowingly lies with a free woman and their sisters or mother and daughter, then it's an abomination, which I assume means illegal. But if he knowingly laid with slave women who were related, then it wasn't an abomination or it wasn't an offense. So I guess my question is, status aside, what is the difference? Well, honestly, I don't really know. Other than status, I don't have any clue as to why there was this difference. Um, the term that you've mentioned, abomination, again, it's a modern term. Sometimes modern terms are not that accurate. Mm. Um, the heated term would be a hokel or hokel. And this is a term that, to the best of our understanding, what it means was a quitting of, or infringement on, on a taboo that probably also a, had, a, had to lead to execution. So it wasn't just a moral sense. It was also the question of the penalty, mm -hmm. the type of the penalty. So whenever you see in the Hittit laws the term hokel, we have to assume, even if it's not explicit, we have to assume that the punishment would have been execution. And actually, execution was quite rare in the heated laws. Oh, really? But it does feel, yes, it was quite rare. For homicide, for example, nobody would have executed the, uh, the murderer. It, the murderer would have to pay a fine. However, in the so-called sex laws, um, this, the term hokel appears quite uh, prominently. So execution would, be, uh, would have been performed if people were to commit uh, several types of uh, incest. Um, bestiality. So who would have been punished? Would it just have been the man or would the women have been punished also? Because if in this particular case, if the women were to be punished as well, then it was this law would seem to favor the slaves. I mean, assuming that the act was consensual. No, no. In this specific case, the only person to be executed would be the perpetrator. That is the, the men who committed the crime. As I said a few moments before, um, only men were regarded as, as possible uh, culprits. Only men could have performed uh, uh, um, uh, these uh, acts. So women could have never been able to commit these crimes. Uh, a woman could have not uh, commit incest. Hmm. It's a bit, a bit strange, you know, but this is the perspective. 
by the way, not only of the Hittites. You see the same point of view in any possible engineer Eastern law collection. And only uh, you, you can say that it's some kind of an androcentric point of view. That, you know, it's again modern trends and definitions. But only men could perform these crimes, and and for this reason, only men could have been punished for the crimes. That's just in the case of incest, though, because when you talk about adultery and rape, if it was adultery, then the woman would be punished also. Exactly, exactly. There are two exceptions. One is in, indeed adultery, and another exception, which is, again, it's a complicated case, but when it comes to bestiality, it is in all likelihood also a, both the, the person and the animal would have been executed. It, it's a bit bizarre, I know, but this is how it happens. <laughs> When so, it comes to adultery, yes, adultery and rape were regarded as quite similar cases. And the main difference between the two was that it was a consent, eventually. Rape, it means just uh, there's no consent, and adultery means that there was consent. Basically, it's the same idea of men and women who were not married, but each one of them was married to another person, and they committed, uh, they had sex. Right. So when it comes to, to adultery, if the woman uh, actually... Uh, expressed consent, uh, and both uh, the men and the women were caught. In theory, both could have been executed, in theory. And you mentioned that um, if the rape or adultery took place in the home, it was consent was assumed. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, would that make, you know, in, in that time period, would that make a woman being home alone, a married woman being home alone incredibly dangerous? I guess so. You see, again, all, all these argumentations and, and hypotheses are very theoretical. Right. What, I guess what the Hittite laws expressed in, in this case was very simple. A woman was supposed to stay at home. A woman was supposed to always be somehow under the offices or the, the authority of a governing male figure. If she was not married, it would have been her father. If she was married, it would have been her husband. And at any other case, a, a woman was not supposed to be wandering about. She was not supposed to be left alone, presumably. Uh, so if a woman was somehow in, outside her domestic sphere and would not, nobody could have guarded her, then she could have been raped by, by another man. Mm. Had, she been, had she been at home, it would have been assumed that uh, sexual relations were, uh, uh, well, were consensual eventually uh, because somebody had to be around. And if it happened in her home or in the inhabited area, and she screamed aloud because she was raped, presumably somebody would have heard her and somebody would have come in. Was there anything in place that um, you guys have come across that would, would have been a way for a woman to maybe contest that she wasn't giving consent in the home? Or was there any way for her to fight it, I guess is what I'm saying. We have more or less zero evidence. And actually this is one of the most complicated uh, issues about heated laws. Other than the, law, the laws themselves, we don't have any external evidence. We don't really know what happened. And as a matter of fact, we don't even know whether these laws were actually practiced and enforced. Mm. We have zero evidence. So we do have these perhaps theoretical, perhaps practical laws, but we don't know what happens beyond the laws. We can only speculate. When it comes to Mesopotamia, the situation is a bit different. But when it comes to Hati, we don't have any external evidence. So we have absolutely zero evidence about any woman who would contest uh, what happened. Because we have zero evidence about actual cases of rape, adultery, incest, and anything else. Right. All we have are just the laws, and that's it. 
Well, let's actually go back to incest for a moment. You mentioned in your article that outside the laws, incest is referred to by a phrase that's translated to um, not right and is often punishable by death or a purification right. Can you tell us what are purification rights? Um, I, I'm sorry, but this is not exactly what's in the article. The term not right or not are, it is not a term that defines uh, these sexual cases. It is a more general term uh, that, uh, that can define many cases of, of inappropriate conduct. So absolutely, sexual uh, inappropriate conduct was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. And actually, we have many more uh, acts that could have been defined as improper or nata'ara that had nothing to do with the sexual acts. And nata'ara was not necessarily uh, a phrase that uh, would have resulted in execution. This is hokel. It's a different term that probably led uh, to execution. Nata'ara was a much more general term, and we find it in many texts outside the laws. Unlike Hokel, by the way, Hokel was very rare uh, term to, to find outside the laws. Okay. Um, so the purification rights, when would those have taken place? Well, again, this is just like the laws, we, what we have are more or less prescriptions, in a sense. We do have uh, descriptions of how a right could have been performed, but we don't have any evidence about if it really happened. And if it happened, we don't have a, a real case. So what we have when it comes to purification rights, it's, it's quite a similar situation to, to the laws. We have these perhaps theoretical cases. We don't have the practical implementation of the text. However, I do believe that these rights would have taken place, especially when it comes to, to sex crimes, especially in these gaps between what the laws decreed. Because the laws tell us one thing, and sometimes these purification rights actually express a different thing. Because in some of the cases of uh, sex crimes, the, the outcome, according to the law, must be an execution. However, these purification rights, the, the whole meaning is that instead of executing a person who committed a crime, these rights are meant to purify the person. And also, by the way, to purify his community. That uh, somehow, if a person committed a defiling act, his community would also be defiled. So everybody has to be purified, not only the person who committed the crime, but also his surrounding and immediate environment. So presumably, if a person, for example, committed bestiality, according to the laws, he had to be executed. But again, presumably, if in some remote community, they didn't wish to kill everybody who just committed bestiality whenever, if and whenever it happened. So they could have performed these rights. Uh, if it, uh, it, if it was known that somebody committed bestiality, then there was this elaborated set of uh, procedures and purifications. Eventually, the, the person would have been uh, purified, and everybody were purified, and it was okay, and nobody had to die. But this kind of rights, actually, the whole existence is, in a sense, uh, it stands in contrast of the laws because they just they give a different solution to what the laws uh, gave. So on the topic of bestiality, um, you mentioned the four-ish animals that there were strict, detailed laws about. Why were just those animals punishable by death, but not all animals, I guess? This is a great question. And unfortunately, you know, the better the question is, the worse the answer is. And I just don't have a good answer for that. And for that matter, nobody, nobody else has. You don't really know. And the whole matter of bestiality actually distinguishes the Hittite collection 
from any other engineers in the collection because the, 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 very, the very act of bestiality does not appear in any ancient New Testament law collection. It only appears in the Bible. And biblical laws are very general. They only dictate that bestiality is forbidden and punishable by death. The Hittite is the only collection that we know of from the ancient Near East that has any kind of specification. And it is a great question why certain animals explicitly are, were explicitly mentioned while others were not. Um, now, there were scholars who tried to, to speculate that basically the Hittite laws and perhaps other laws were mainly built upon um, cases that, that happened in real life. So whenever a case happened, a law would have been invented in order to counteract the case. And at a later stage, all these cases and all these decisions were booked together to form the, the whole law of some 200 laws. Um, it's possible, of course, we don't have any evidence. But if this was the case, then we can speculate that since uh, certain animals were, uh, uh, there were bestiality relations that happened with certain animals, for each one of these animals, a law was, was decreed. And eventually all these laws were grouped together and found their way into the whole collection. So why Personally, did some of the animals... Oh, go ahead. No, no I, I, I'm quite skeptical about this whole hypothesis. It's it just me, of course, and I can never prove anything. <laughs> You're skeptical that these animals were mentioned in the laws because the cases happened frequently? Yes, or, or at all. I, my speculation is that these animals were just picked up maybe randomly, maybe not so randomly, but they were mentioned as, as a few cases that should be brought up, but that's it. I don't think that it means that necessarily each one of these specific animals was indeed uh, in real life somehow was engaged, or men were engaged in bestiality with these specific animals and not with other ones. I think the whole issue is very problematic because uh, the Hittite laws are, as I said before, they are uh, special in, in, in this regard. They're the only ones who even mention bestiality and they're the only ones who specify specific animals. And there, are, there were uh, scholars who assumed that because of this, the Hittites had some kind of um, I don't really know how to put it, but the Hittites did perform bestiality, or they were somehow more, more tolerant toward bestiality because they, they actually documented it. And I, I think that this is quite far-fetched, to be honest. So I think that uh, just like many other things in, in Hittite writings and in, in historical writings at large, these are, at least to a certain degree, theoretical writings, theoretical decisions, and not necessarily things that had to be implemented. So it's not as if, um, if if a person committed bestiality, it was something that happened frequently or, or, or relatively frequently, um, and it's not even necessarily that, that that person would have been executed if it happened, just because it appeared, it appeared in, the, in the laws. And again, the partial evidence for that is that they did, they did have the purification rights that are supposed to, to, to leave the person alive even if he committed bestiality. So why would then some animals be put to death if someone committed bestiality or you know paired with them, but other animals would be able to go through the purification rite? Well, I think it didn't really get to do too much with the animals, but rather with the person. Right. Um, what the laws say is that whenever a person committed a pairing with an animal, it, um, well, the men would have been executed. And in one case, in one law, uh, the verb is negated in the plural, so it obviously it means that both person and animal had to be executed. 
So I guess my question is, why execute the animal? Who knows? Fair I can only speculate. Yeah. <laughs> I must be honest. Many things, you ask very good questions, and these are questions that many scholars ask themselves, and nobody gave a good answer today. Um, I can only assume that if bestiality was uh, defiling, it would have been defiling both for the person who committed it and for the animal who was part of it. And in order to get rid of this defilement, both parties had to be executed. Now, of course, this is not a very good answer because we do not have the same case, for example, for incest. In incest, only the men who performed it would have been executed and not the, the victim. So there is a difference between bestiality and incest, for example, in this regard. So in reading your article, one thing I thought our listeners might find interesting to note is that you say, aside from the Hebrew Bible, same-sex relations are not mentioned in the Hittite laws or any other law collection of the ancient Near East. But you do have um, a theory about a ritual known as the, and I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize, known as the <laughs> Aniwiyanis. Aniwiyanis. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And you say that that may refer to same-sex relations, but can you tell me a little bit about that ritual and its meaning and, you know, what you suggest it is? Yes, and I'll do it as briefly as I can because it's a bit complicated, and as many other things, it's a bit uh, hypothetical. And it's um, well, it's, it's my conjecture eventually. You see, this uh, ritual, the Nimriani's ritual, what you know for certain that is that it was performed um, upon a, a patient or a man, and it did involve some kind of transformation. Now, in, in the peak of this ritual. Um, the patient w w would go to sleep, and when he woke up in the morning, they, they brought a, a virgin girl, and the virgin girl would stand at the entrance of the house in, in, inside of which the, person, the, the patient uh, slept before. And then the virgin cries out, and she cries something like, um, uh, go out, and she mentions a specific deity, in order for another deity to come in. Now, this is an obvious symbol of something that is being um, abolished, in a sense, in order for something else to be invited in or adduced. So something that probably had something to do with effeminacy or passivity was supposed to be driven out of that man, and somebody else, uh, something else, sorry, that was supposed to be regarded as affiliated with masculinity, in a sense, would have been uh, implemented inside that man. So this is what we know, more or less for a fact. All the rest is speculation. And my speculation was that, well, we need to understand what it means, effeminacy, when it, when it applies for men, um, and, and what it means masculinity when it applies to men. And so my suggestion, to, to get in a nutshell, that uh, it was the case in which a person was caught uh, performing a probably homosexual relations, at least when that person was the, the receptive uh, party of the relations. And I think that, uh, at least in the mind of the Hittites, it would have been uh, an effeminate behavior, and they would have wanted that person to be uh, returned, in a sense, to normative behavior, and that is to be not receptive, but rather the, the active or penetrative party of the of sexual relations. So I think that this is what happened in that specific ritual. Uh, by the way, I, also, I should uh, mention in parentheses that a colleague of mine, Jared Miller, uh, had a very similar idea about a different uh, ritual, uh, a Pasquati's ritual. And actually, he published his ideas about Pasquati's ritual in the same journal where I published my own idea about Aniriandis. Hmm. 
So we actually have two opinions of two different scholars about two different uh, Hittite magical rituals that, that maybe were aimed for, for the same thing, basically. Yeah, and then even then it wouldn't have been considered illegal, it would have just been like a, a ritual. Yes, but the question is, when you say if something is illegal, what does it mean? And something can only be considered as illegal if there's a law that bans that behavior, or something can be, sometimes behavior can be very uh, illegal or completely unacceptable, even if there's no specific law that says this cannot happen. And actually, we do have the evidence for such a thing. Um, a relations between brother and sister, for example, which they didn't appear in the Hittite laws. There's no explicit um, ban for brother and sisters to have their sexual relations. But we do know for a fact from other texts, and not the laws, that this act was very was very harsh in the Hittite mind. And actually, there's a text in which the Hittite king says that if a brother and sister uh, perform sexual relations, they are to be executed. Oh, wow. And again, it doesn't appear in the laws. Yes, so I think that we should regard not only laws, but many different, many other types of texts as very, as bearing at least to a certain degree legal nature. I think that these magical rituals, at least to a certain degree, they had a very strong uh, effect on people. And they could have been used uh, it's somehow, in a sense, as a replacement for the laws. Uh, I think that, again, bestiality is a very good example, but it's not the only one that sometimes the laws could have banned something, they could have not banned something else, but in certain communities, people could decide for themselves how to act. They could have used these uh, purification rituals in order to enforce certain norms and moralities, even if these norms and moralities did not appear in the laws, in the, in the official laws. So I guess that leads into my one of my final questions, which is why outlaw or prohibit some sexual situations that maybe would be consensual, or I guess why were these laws needed in the first place to tell people how they could and could not act, or in the sense, uh, or in the cases of um, spousal death, who they could and could not marry? Well, unfortunately, and I really must be a bit apologetic here, again, I don't have a good answer. And I think that my inability to answer this question mainly based on a larger question what these laws actually were, whether these laws were indeed law collections in the sense, in the modern sense of the word, or maybe, as, as many scholars actually argue, that all these law collections, not, again, not just the Hittite ones, also the Sopotamian ones, they were nothing but uh, theoretical texts, or uh, maybe theological ones, or idealized uh, exercises, and nobody really meant to use these texts as, as real uh, life directives. And in many places, people were not even aware of the existence of the laws, so that many communities and villages and small towns far away from the, 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 the centers, people didn't really live, up, live according to the laws. They had their own rules, non-written ones, and they just lived uh, according to, to their own conventions. So it's a very big question that we can't really answer. How, how much of these laws was actually enforced and practiced? Okay. Well... I really enjoyed your article. I thought it was incredibly interesting. Can we be expecting so any new publications from you in the future? Um, well, um, I have to admit that I'm writing right now another article for the same journal, for Nielsen Archaeology, but on a completely different topic, presumably to appear later on in this year. Uh, yeah, well, you know how it is in the academic board, we have to write. What's so, the, yeah, what's, what's the topic for the upcoming article? 
Well, it would be something about the, the gender image of the Gala or Kalu, that is a um, Mesopotamian uh, professional lamenter, and the visual aspects of that uh, person's uh, gender identity. I mean, that one sounds interesting also, so I will be sure to read it as well. Um, Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe I didn't cover or that you want to mention about your article? Um, no, no, I'm happy that you liked it. Uh, I, I, will, I enjoyed myself writing it. It was a, a nice uh, return to many, many years ago when I was just working on my MA thesis. And every once in a while, it's nice to return back to your older materials. So uh, it was fun for me. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me and letting me interview you. Well, thank you. This has been a Friends of ASOR podcast. The Friends of ASOR initiative is an outreach program of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Anyone can become a friend and it's free. Just go to asorblog.org backslash FOA registration to sign up. Again, that's asorblog.org backslash FOA registration. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the ASOR blog for all of our podcasts, videos, and a whole lot more.